following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw or our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Some of the uh, ideas in the Apostles' Creed and the ideas in the Bible that point us towards God's plans for the future. So there was a line there at the end of when it talked about Jesus and it says he will come again to judge the quick and the dead. And the translation we've used is the living and the dead. The quick and the dead sounds like something out of a Western movie. Uh, but it just means living. The word quick in this old English sense just means the living and the dead. And then at the end of the Apostles' Creed, it says, I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. So these are the things we're going to be talking about today. A few years ago, a book came out called Heaven is for Real. Some of you might have read it. It's the story of a young boy uh, named Colton Burpo. Lived in the States, lives, still lives in the States. And uh, when he was just three years old, Colton had to go undergo emergency surgery, had to have an emergency appendectomy. And while he was on the operating table, he uh, believes that he had a journey to heaven, that he went to heaven and had an experience there, spent some time there, met Jesus there, met some other people there, and then came back again. And after surgery, he woke up and he was able to talk about his experience and talk about the people he'd met. And the interesting thing about that story is that he was apparently able to identify family members who had passed away, who he'd never met and had never known who they were. But he was able to point at this picture and say, oh, that's granddad so-and-so and that's so-and-so because he believes that he'd met them in heaven. So it's an interesting story and the book's become a bestseller uh, and it's done very well. And uh, Colton, I think, is now a teenager and he's coming for a lot of criticism, a lot of flack over that story. A lot of people have completely dismissed it out of hand, but he stands by his story and, and truly believes this really happens. I don't know about you, but I, I just, I'm not sure what to do with stories like that. I really find it quite hard to know what you do with that, what category you place that in. I th for me, I have a natural skepticism about people who have these stories of having gone to heaven and then come back. And on the other side, people that have stories about having gone to hell and come back again and live to tell the tale because you get those ones as well. And it's hard to know. I don't, I don't think you can ever completely discount the fact that this may have happened and this may, this may happen, but um, I, I guess I try to hold it lightly and I think with, this, with this, all this kind of stuff, there's these stories are floating around. The important thing is that as Christians, when we come to talk about these issues of heaven and hell and the afterlife and all of this, that we base our views on what Scripture says and not on the experiences of people who may or may not have gone to these places. We can be encouraged by those stories. Maybe we can be inspired by those stories. But we've got to come back first and ask, what does the Bible say about these issues and the realities of heaven and hell? and go from there rather than arguing from experience or experiences of other people back to Scripture. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to look through a number of passages. We're going to move fairly quick this morning, so you need to be engaged and cover a lot of ground uh, because there's a lot to say and a lot of depth in some of these issues. But we're going to dive in and uh, talk about all this stuff around the afterlife and heaven and hell. We're going to start in Luke chapter 15. So uh, turn over there. Uh, Luke chapter 15 and verse 19, this is a story that Jesus tells. Uh, it's, a, it's kind of like a parable, but it's interesting, this one, because it is the only parable Jesus tells where the person in the parable has a name, and his name is Lazarus. And so some people believe because of that that maybe it's not a parable, maybe it's a real story. 
about a real person and a real experience rather than just a parable. Either way, Jesus tells it in a parable kind of style. So Luke 16, verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. We'll leave it there for a minute. There's a lot in here. A lot of threads to this story. But what we discover in this story is that there's a lot that happens when a person dies. There's a lot of things that take place when a person's life on this earth comes to an end. What happens at the moment that you stop living? What happens at the moment of death? The first thing that happens is that the soul and the body are separated at the moment of death. For everyone, Christians, non-Christians, everyone. At death, the soul and the body are separated. So your body, when you die, sooner or later goes into the ground. Burial or cremation. And, and either of those options are fine, by the way. There's no right or wrong. There's no more biblical. Cremation is fine. Burial is fine. Our body goes into the ground. But our soul will go immediately to one of two places. Either heaven or this place Jesus calls Hades. And the soul goes immediately. There is no purgatory. There is no limbo kind of place and time. There is no kind of, you know, this picture of the soul kind of going on an arduous journey through the Netherlands, uh, you know, just trying to find its way to its final destination. That's not biblical. There is no sense that uh, the soul is going to go on some kind of running the gauntlet after death. The soul is just immediately transported to one of two places. It's either heaven or it's Hades. And so this realm Let's take heaven first, the realm called heaven. Now, Jesus doesn't call it heaven here. He just talks about it being the place where Abraham is. And Lazarus goes to this place. He's by Abraham's side. So Abraham is, is clearly there. But this is the place where God resides. We know from other scriptures, this is the place called heaven. This is God's space. This is the place where God the Father resides. This is the place where Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father. This is the place where the Holy Spirit is sent from. This is the dwelling place that God resides. And this is the place that believers go as soon as they pass away, as soon as they die. Now, even though heaven and earth are two distinct realms, what you see in the Bible is there is this constant crossing over between heaven and earth. Throughout history, throughout the biblical story, there is all sorts of crossings over. So Jacob has this dream where he sees a ladder going from heaven to earth and angels ascending and descending on the ladder, representing the fact that the angels are constantly crossing over between heaven and earth. They're coming from heaven to minister to people on earth and to appear to people on earth or to help those on earth. And so the angels are coming from heaven to earth and back again. Jesus came from heaven to earth and then back to heaven. And he's going to come back to earth again one day. The Holy Spirit was sent from heaven to earth. So there is this constant crossing between heaven and earth. We can't cross over in this life. But the boundaries between heaven and earth, heaven is separated from earth only by a thin veneer. And there is constant interplay 
between these two realms throughout the biblical story. So when a believer dies, they are transported. Their soul is transported to heaven, and heaven is a place of absolute, pure joy. It's a place of joy in the presence of Father and Son and Spirit. It's a place of delight. It's a place, place of experiencing the pleasures at God's right hand, experiencing the presence of God, experiencing the community of all those who have died, who are followers of God before us. It's the place where you can catch up with the great saints through history, from Abraham, David, Isaiah, Jesus, obviously, Paul, Augustine, Martin Luther, whoever you want to have a chat to. It's this community of those who loved and follow and belong to Jesus in this life. And when we experience these things in heaven, it is a conscious experience. So people that you know who are in heaven, they are alive. They are awake. There's, there's a school of thought among some Christians that heaven is just a place where people sleep. It's called soul sleeping. And the idea is that when you, when you die, your soul just sleeps and sleeps and sleeps until the day when Jesus comes again. But look at what Lazarus is doing here. Does, is there anything in this passage that suggests to you Lazarus is asleep? No, he's being comforted, the text says. And later on, in verse 24, the rich man asks Abraham to send Lazarus. Tell him to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. Obviously, Lazarus is capable of activity here. He's awake. Those people who are in heaven are awake. They're conscious of this experience that's going on. The idea of soul sleeping just comes from the, the euphemism that's used in the New Testament where people are described as falling asleep. But that's just another name for dying. That's just a euphemism, just the same way we say today people have kicked the bucket. It's just the same thing. They just, they just talked about people falling asleep. But people have misconstrued that and they say, oh no, so people must die and then they just sleep, 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 sleep. Lazarus wasn't asleep. He's awake. He's having the time of his life in heaven. Still is with Abraham, who's having the time of his life, and Jesus is right there, and it's a party. People that are in heaven are enjoying God, enjoying one another. They are being refreshed. They are being renewed. They are being reinvigorated. That is how we should think about people who are in heaven. And that's what we have to look forward to, those of us who belong to Jesus. When we get to heaven, it is a place of never-ending delight and pleasure and joy in the presence of God. The other place is not so fun. The other place is what Jesus calls Hades. Now, sometimes in the Bible, Hades is just the name for death. It's just the name for the grave. But here, Jesus talks about it as a place, as a realm where people go when they die. And this is the realm that people go to when they die who do not belong to Jesus, who are not, not united to Jesus, not bad people or good people, but people who don't belong to Jesus. This is where they go when they die. And it's not a comfortable thing to talk about. I don't like preaching on this. Uh, some people, I think, almost take like a morbid delight in talking about Hades and hell, and we shouldn't do that. It's, we should talk about these topics with tears in our eyes, to be honest, that anyone would ever have to go there and should lead us to pray that no one would experience these realities. But uh, Hades is the realm that unbelievers go when they die. We, we, we learn in Luke 15 that it is a place, the two words that are used to describe it are agony and torment. 
the rich man talks about fire. He talks about being in agony in this fire. We don't know whether that's a literal fire. The, the idea of fire in the Bible is a metaphor of God's judgment and the severity of God's judgment. We don't know whether that literally means there is going to be fire or not. We don't need to obsess over the details. You don't need to know exactly what does or doesn't happen in Hades. I tend to think the agony of Hades is the reality that people are there and they're excluded from God's presence and they know there's a heaven. Because the rich man seems to know that there's a heaven. Do you know what I mean? He's not just in his own insulated world. He's aware of Abraham. He's aware of Lazarus. And he's aware that he's not there. And he can't get that. That is probably the greatest agony imaginable. That you are excluded from the presence of God and you're aware the party's going on and you can't get to it. Abraham says to him later on, verse 26, between you and me, there is a great chasm set in place. Anyone who wants to cross from here to there or there to here cannot do it. You cannot get between these realms. After you've died, that is fixed. It's a fixed and set reality depending on what you have done with Jesus in the present life. So you have these two places and, and everyone who has passed away is in one of these two spaces. There's no limbo, there's no in-between, there's no crossing back and forth. Everyone who has ever died is right now consciously in one of these two spaces. Now, the really important point, though, is that heaven and Hades are only temporary states. This is so vital. This is where we start to go off track because a lot of Christians assume that we go to heaven when we die and that's our final destination. And that's where we spend eternity, in heaven. No, not according, not according to Scripture. Heaven is important, but it's not our final destination. These two states, heaven and Hades, they will continue on until one decisive event happens. The return of Jesus. And that event will be so huge that it will change the entire landscape of eternity. So I want to look at this. What is going to happen when Jesus returns and how is that going to change things? 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Flick over there. 1 Thessalonians 4, and here's Paul writing into a community of people in Thessalonica who are very confused around these issues of what is going to happen when Jesus returns and what happens to us and what happens to people who have already died. So 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 16. For the Lord himself, that's Jesus, will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Okay, so we have this picture here that the day is going to come when Jesus will return again from heaven to earth. Just as he became incarnate 2,000 years ago, he will again become incarnate in this earth, physically, bodily, present in this world he's not going to come as a little baby in a manger anymore he's not going to come as an infant he's going to come in the fullness of his glory revelation pictures him as the rider on the white horse coming now dramatically victoriously to bring about the final judgment and to usher in the new creation so when jesus comes he will appear on this earth and his appearing will be visible it will be public Everyone in the world will know when Jesus returns, unmistakably. You don't have to worry that you might miss him. 
You don't have to, if someone says, oh, maybe he's over there, maybe he's over there. This is what Jesus talks about in Matthew 24. Don't listen to them. Because if they have to point it out to you, he's not the one. You will see him. You don't need to worry about how that happens. People get into all these theories, don't they? What's it going to, maybe it'll be TV. It's going to be live streaming on the internet. Is it going to be free to air? Sky going to have it? How's it going to work? Doesn't matter. We don't know. Don't need to worry about the details. When Jesus returns, Revelation 1-7, every eye will see him. Every eye around the world, you'll know, we'll know. Could happen any second and we will know. It's going to be exciting. But even those who reject Christ, don't believe he's the saviour, given no thought to it, they will know too. And Revelation 1-7 says, and they will look on him and will mourn for the one they've pierced. There's going to be mourning because people will recognize Jesus as Lord and they've refused his love and then it will be too late. But either way, we will see him and we'll see him in his glory and he is going to be back here physically, bodily on the earth. The, the text talks about the, the sound of the trumpet. Maybe there'll be a literal trumpet call at that time. It talks about the shout of the archangel. Maybe that's the angel Gabriel who give a great announcement of the arrival of Jesus, like the arrival of a great dignitary. However it happens, Jesus will be here again and his appearing will be unmistakable. Now, at the end of verse 15, no, 16. At the end of verse 16, Paul says, the dead in Christ will rise first. So you have this picture that all those believers who are currently in heaven with Jesus, when he comes from heaven to earth, he's going to bring them with him. Okay, so the dead in Christ are the Christians who have passed away already. When Jesus comes from heaven to earth, he will lead a great procession of all those who are in heaven. So the people we know who are in heaven right now, they're not staying there forever. When Jesus returns, he's bringing them with him back to earth. That's where he's coming. So, so don't just picture Jesus appearing. Picture him coming from heaven to earth, leading a great procession of the great company of the redeemed, the saints, the souls in heaven now. But they're going to be joining him on the earth, the dead in Christ, believers who have passed away. And then it says, here's where it gets really fun, verse 17, after that, notice after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Now that word, that, those words caught up, that is where we get the idea of the rapture. The, the Latin word, not even the Greek word, the Latin word that translates caught up is the word raptus. And that is where the idea of the rapture comes from. It's the only time in the whole Bible that that particular Greek word is used, gets translated rapture, and this whole idea of a rapture has developed from there. If you haven't heard of the rapture, the idea as it's usually described is that there's going to be a moment when all Christians around the world will simultaneously disappear. And they'll be snatched up to heaven. They'll be immediately teleported from earth to heaven in the blink of an eye. If you've seen the Left Behind movies or read the books, you'll know this. It's pretty dramatic. Kurt Cameron's in it. And the idea is, so if you've got a Christian pilot, disappears. You've got a Christian bus driver, disappears. Maybe the clothes are left there. Maybe the wedding ring's left there on the seat, but they're gone. Just like that. It's dramatic, isn't it? If you, you know, anyone, anywhere, Christian person suddenly disappears. They're taken to heaven and then havoc breaks out on earth because of this. And then there is this time of, it's usually claimed a time of tribulation, seven years of tribulation. Now, when you look at what Paul is describing here, 
The whole movement of this passage is that Jesus is coming from heaven to earth. He's heading in the other direction. He's coming from heaven to earth. He's bringing all the dead in Christ with him. What sense would it make if immediately after that, and Paul says after this, suddenly believers are transported to heaven? So when we get to heaven then, Jesus is not even there. He's on, earth. He's on earth. He's left heaven. So now we're not even where the party is. We're just in heaven now by ourselves. Who wants that? It doesn't make sense. Either that or we somehow meet Jesus on the way. Hey, Jesus, I'm heading to heaven. I thought you were in heaven. No, it turns out you're going that way. How does this work? It just doesn't work with the flow of the text. In fact, that Greek word that's translated caught up, it had an interesting usage in the Greco-Roman world. It was used of people in a city who would go out and welcome a dignitary when they came to visit. So if the emperor comes to visit the city, there would be a welcoming party that go out and meet the emperor. Why did they meet the emperor? To go and live where the emperor lives? No. Why? To welcome him back. That's the idea of being caught up to meet Jesus. Is not that we go off to heaven, but if we are alive when Jesus returns, we are caught up to meet Jesus so that we become the welcoming party to receive him back to earth. The whole movement of this passage is from heaven to earth. Maybe we will be lifted up from the earth. It talks about being caught up in the clouds. Maybe that will literally happen. Maybe we'll rise up. But even, even if so, the whole emphasis is that we're welcoming Jesus and bringing him back, ushering him back, escorting him back to earth where he will then make his permanent abode. So if you read the progression of this passage, there really is no idea here that there's going to be a moment in time when Christians around the world are suddenly going to disappear. It's just not there. I know Kirk Cameron's a good actor. I know you like him. I know you love the movies. Maybe you read the book. I know maybe, maybe for some of you, I know maybe the rapture has been a really big deal and part of your theology. But I would, all I could do really is encourage you to read this passage. And only this passage because it's the only time the word is even used. So you have to, you're going to have to make sense of this text, this passage, somehow. I know some people say, oh, no, no, the rapture happens first, and then there's seven years, and then Jesus returns. Well, that's not what Paul says. He says, after that, then we'll be caught up. So you look at the text and you decide. But I don't think, based on this passage, there is going to be a moment in time when we suddenly are raptured up to heaven. The, the dramatic event, the only event that matters, is Jesus coming to earth. And that could happen any second. Any second, Jesus could come back. And we who are left, who believe and love him, we will be the welcoming party, escorting him back down to earth. So it's okay to read the Left Behind series. Just uh, put them in the fiction section of the library. That's all, uh, that's all I ask. Okay, so that's the return of Jesus. And then when Jesus returns, there will be this great event of the final judgment. Turn over to Revelation chapter 20. Jesus will undertake a judgment in this world of all those who have ever lived, everyone who's ever lived, Christian, non-Christian. It's the uh, best description we get of it is uh, Revelation 20, uh, verse 12. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and the death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. 
Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So there's an interesting idea here that when we stand before Jesus, every person who's ever lived will stand before Jesus uh, and, and, and experience a judgment. We will be judged by Christ. And you have, if you read that passage closely, you notice there's two different books that are going on. Did you catch that? There are the books. Books were opened with a record of deeds, with a record of everything we've ever done. And then there is a separate book, the book of life. Two quite separate things. So firstly, as you stand before Jesus on the day of judgment, he's going to open the book of deeds. He's going to open the books. And those books have a record of everything you've ever done while you've lived on this earth. Every thought, every word, every deed, every inclination of your heart, every attitude, every unseen thought. Jesus knows it all. It is recorded there. He will open the books. And he may choose to read out a few selected passages from the books just to remind you of a few things you've done while you've been alive in this world. And we will be judged according to our deeds. A lot of Christians don't understand this, that there is going to be a judgment and it will be according to our deeds. Second Corinthians, Paul says, we, we will all be judged according to what we've done in the body, whether good or bad. There's going to be a judgment according to works. You say, well, how I thought I was saved by grace. Hold on, we'll get to that. But first, there is a judgment according to deeds. Now, what do you think is going to happen when Jesus opens the books and reads out all of your deeds, thoughts, words, and actions? What do you think the verdict is likely to be? Guilty? Mm-hmm, probably. Certainly true for me. We're all going to hear guilty. None of us have got anything in those books that is going to get us into the new creation. So we will all, at a certain point, hear that verdict of guilty pronounced over our lives. And we will know that what we deserve is eternal punishment. And there'll be a moment of recognizing that. That the verdict we've earned is eternal damnation. But then, Jesus is going to walk over here. He may not literally walk, but I'm... And he's going to open the book of life. The book of life is the list of the names of those who have received forgiveness for sins through the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's it. Not good people. Not people that went to church, not people that gave money in the offering, not people that got baptized, people who are united to Jesus Christ through faith and have received his grace, received his forgiveness into their lives and surrendered their lives to him in faith. Those are the names who will be in the book of life. And it is only on that basis that we will finally be sentenced. We'll be judged according to our works. The verdict will be according to works. But the sentence will be according to the book of life. And so if your name is in the book of life, you'll hear Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant. Not that we're good, not that we're faithful, but he is and we're united to him. Come and enter into the joy of your rest. Come and enter into the new creation. Your name is in the book of life. You're deserving of death, yes, guilty according to the books of deeds, but your name is in the book of life. You're saved through me, Jesus will say. You are one of mine. And welcome home. That is the only basis on which the final sentencing, if you like, will happen. And those of us who belong to Jesus will be acquitted at the final judgment through no effort of our own, but simply because our name is in the book of life and we are united to Christ in faith. Those whose names are not in the book of life have to continue being judged according to the book of deeds. That's all they've got. And so the sentence has to be guilty, just as the verdict is guilty.
And so from there, from the final judgment, then every person who's ever lived will go on to one of two realms, either hell or the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth. If we deal with the negative one first, hell, it's not fun to talk about, but it is part of the biblical story. Hell is really simply the eternalizing of Hades. Hades is the present realm where unbelievers go. Hell is simply the permanent reality. I, I think it's best to think of hell just simply in terms of what is not there. It's the removal of God's presence. It's the removal of God's love. It's the removal of grace. It's the removal of joy. It's the removal of peace because God and his people will be in another realm and in another space. And so it's the removal. It's the removal even of the common grace that we enjoy in this life because in this life, believers and unbelievers still have the sun shining on them, still enjoy the pleasures of this life. But now in the new creation, the final eternal state, all of that's removed. Everything associated with the presence of God is removed, even common grace. And so hell is the exclusion of all of that. If you want to read a little bit more on hell, the best book you can get is C.S. Lewis, The Great Divorce. Really good read, descriptive, poetic, but very good around this issue of hell. Let me read you just one quote from that book and the way he talks about hell. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. So you see what he's saying. Ultimately, God is a respecter of choice. Ultimately, God will say to those who go to hell, he will say, you have stood at arm's length from my saving love all through your life. So now I'm simply making that a permanent reality. You've alienated yourself from me in this life. I respect that choice. That will now become an eternal reality. You have rejected me in this life. You've separated yourself from me in this life. I respect that choice. Now that will become a permanent reality. It's a self-choice that people make. Those who refuse God's saving love in this life will simply experience the eternal reality that they've already chosen for themselves. That's hell. Let's not dwell on that anymore. Let's move to the new creation. That's the good news, right? So here's the thing. Once believers have passed through the final judgment, names are in the book of life. We're good to go. Then we will become the population of the new heavens and the new earth. See, again, we imagine that our final destiny is going to be going off to some far-flung realm called heaven, and we're going to be there as disembodied spirits sitting on clouds with harps and halos singing hymns forever. Nothing could be further from the truth. The biblical reality is that the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth, the final future for believers, Christians, is that there's going to be three great unities, unity of three things. Firstly, heaven and earth will be united. See, at the moment, they're two separate realms. Heaven and earth can't cross from one to the other if you're a human being in this life. But in the end, heaven comes down. Because if God comes down from heaven to earth, if Christ comes, if the Father and the Son and the Spirit reside here, where is heaven? It's here. It's wherever God is, surely. So finally, heaven and earth will actually be meshed into one realm. It's that 80 song. Heaven is a place on earth. They got it more right than they ever realized. Heaven one day will become a place on earth. The Lord's prayer will be answered. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's not just a prayer for today. It's a prayer for the new creation. And one day it will be answered. God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven because heaven and earth will be united. This earth will be the kingdom in its fullness. 
And the peace of God, the shalom of God, will permeate every square inch of this creation. So our final hope is not for an ethereal disembodied realm. Our final hope is for a newly resurrected earth where heaven and earth become united. The second thing that's united is that God and his people will be united. Revelation 21 again, God says, Now the dwelling of God is with his people. All through Scripture, God's desire is to be Emmanuel, to be God with us. And the final realization of that will be in the new creation, where God comes to dwell with us on this earth, perfected world. And we will be so consumed and enveloped by the presence of God, we'll be just wrapped up and caught up in His love and in His life and in His glory and in His grace forever. God and His people finally united. Christ and His church finally married. And then finally, thirdly, there will be a unity of our soul and our body. Remember we talked at the beginning about how when we die, when a person dies, the soul and the body are separated. The soul goes either to heaven or Hades, the body goes into the ground. But one day, that will be, our soul and body will be reunited. We'll be put back together again. And we will be embodied creatures again. Now you say, well, how does that happen? Because I know someone who got cremated. So what, you know, how's God going to do that? It's just ashes now. But I tell you, God has put you together once. He can put you together again. He's knitted you together in your mother's womb. He'll get the pieces back together. Don't worry. It'll happen. He will put you back together. And the body that you receive, the resurrection body you receive, will be your present body perfected. Okay? Sorry, those of you that are looking forward to a brand new, categorically new body. It's not going to be that. It's going to be your present body perfected. That's why, read 1 Corinthians 15. We don't have time to dive in, but 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talks about the body is sown into the ground like a seed, the current body, sown into the ground, and then it's raised up again, like a, like a, like a tree, like a plant, raised up again. There will be continuity between your present body and your future body. We'll be able to recognize you and the new creation. You will be, there's still going to be physical bodies You've got to get this idea out of your head of just a spirit floating around. That's true now, won't be true then. We will receive these perfected bodies, much like Jesus' own resurrection body. That's about the best example we've got of what these new bodies might look like. Spend some time reading about Jesus after the resurrection. You'll get a sense of what your resurrection body may be like. No more aging, no glasses, no hearing aids, no pacemakers, no walking sticks. No wheelchairs. Those of you that are in the health industry, you are going to have so much free time. It's going to be amazing. You're going to be able to develop all kinds of new pursuits because there's going to be no more medical checkups, no more physio, osteo, chiro. There's just no need for it because our bodies will be utterly perfected. No more sickness, not even the slightest little sniffle. And no more serious sickness, no more cancer. No more chronic illness. No more disease. Nothing that cuts us down in the prime of life, robs our loved ones away from us. No more death, no dying, no mourning, no crying, no pain. Read Revelation 21. It's a beautiful picture. All of that taken away. And we just have these perfected bodies. And we live on in the new creation with each other and with Father, Son, and Spirit. Glorious future. It's the hope. It's the substance of our Christian hope. We've got to know it, we've got to cling to it, we've got to aim for it, we've got to pray that others will join us there if they don't know Jesus yet, right? 
Let me read you, as we close, a quote from this book called Heaven by Randy Elkhorn. It's a really good read if you want to delve more into some of these issues because he picks up a lot of questions that we didn't get time to look at, like, will there be animals in heaven? Mm -hmm, It's a big one. Will there be sports in heaven? I want to read you just a quote about the most important question of all, will we drink coffee in heaven? (laughs) He seriously got a section in this book. I kid you not. Will we drink coffee in heaven? So this is like an encyclopedia of the new creation. (laughs) One paragraph and then we're done. Those who for reasons of allergies, weight problems or addictions can't regularly consume peanuts, chocolate, coffee and wine and countless other foods and drinks may look forward to enjoying them on the new earth. Yes. (laughs) To be free from sin, death and bondage on the new earth will mean that we'll enjoy more pleasures, not less. And the God who delights in our pleasures will be glorified in our grateful praise. Sounds like there's going to be coffee there after all. It's good news. Let's pray. Jesus, we long for that day when you return. And uh, we, we pray, Jesus, in the present, especially when life is hard, that the hope of your returning, the hope of the new heavens and the new earth that Isaiah saw, that John saw, that you will bring about. God, that day when you will say, Behold, I am making all things new. God, we pray that as your word says, that hope would be an anchor for our soul in the present and that we would know that our labor for the Lord in this life is not in vain. Our faith is not in vain. Our hope is not in vain but an incredible hope awaits us. And I pray, God, that this would just give us even greater passion to pray for the lives of those who don't know you, that they would join us in the new creation, that they would pass through the final judgment through having their name in the book of life. And we pray for them, God. We don't want to gloat about our place in the new creation. We want to pray even with with tears, as Paul said, that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. And we pray that you turn their hearts towards you, God. We know it's your will that not a single person would perish. You want to draw people to repentance. And so we pray now for friends, for family, for neighbors who don't know you. God, open their hearts. Plant a seed of faith in their hearts that one day we might be able to stand with them in the new heavens and the new earth and worship you along with them. Thank you that you've given us such an incredible hope Continue to capture our hearts with it every day, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455 Thank you for listening.